Let's turn to our Bibles, 2 Kings chapter 20. Now, you're going to think preacher's lost his mind tonight. You're going to say, now, preacher, we preached out of that this morning, and you're exactly right, 2 Kings chapter number 20. But the truth is, you got about half a message this morning, amen? So you'll get the other half tonight, and that wasn't by accident. I actually, the Lord had not given me a message for tonight. and You know, I don't know why, but we wonder why God does things until it becomes obvious why he did it. And uh, and so I was just waiting on the Lord. And uh, it became apparent to me this is how the Lord wanted us to preach today. So you're going to think I've lost my mind. You're going to think I'm just going through and preaching the same thing over again. And uh, it'll be a little bit like that at first. But then once we get a little momentum going, we're going to launch into the second half of this mess. That's overselling it a little bit. But we probably will get to it. Amen. Second Kings chapter number 20. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Now, if you were here in the service this morning, very familiar to you. The Bible says, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. The prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth, with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again, and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee on the third day, thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee in this city out of, my, out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. And they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go back ten degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down ten degrees. Nay, but let the shadow return backward ten degrees. Now Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backwards, by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be back in the house of God this evening. A Sunday night and just as precious as a Sunday morning, Lord, and just has just as much potential for you to work in our hearts and minds. So help us to have our hearts as open as we did this morning. Help us to be as zeroed in, as locked in, as focused upon your word as we were today. And may you receive glory through our obedience, and may you gain ground in our life for your glory, Lord. We love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we said this morning, we spent a little time in the text that we have just read considering a thought out of the life of Hezekiah. The text tells the story of the sickness and healing of Hezekiah, king of Judah. God not only healed Hezekiah, but the Bible says he also added 15 years to his life. Uh, we could say this, that Hezekiah's story is the perfect example, the epitome of the idea of living on borrowed time. Oftentimes, if someone gets past their 70th year, uh, we'll say they're living on borrowed time because David told us that three score and ten were appointed 
unto man. Or often when someone has been sick and they have recovered of that sickness and they were expected to perish, we'll say they're living on borrowed time. They're living in mercy days. Days they should not have had, but by the mercy of God, they do. Well, the Bible tells us that God added to Hezekiah 15 years to his life. And we talked a little bit this morning about how that Hezekiah's story reminds us not just of individuals in a similar situation physically, but in fact remind us of every born-again belief. For you and me as saved individuals, we likewise are living on borrowed time. We don't deserve to be alive. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We don't deserve the grace of God. But God, by His mercy, has given us life and life more abundantly. And so we walked through our text and considered some similarities. We talked about his problem in verse 1, that he was diseased. The Bible says he was sick unto death and that he was doomed. God had said, thou shalt die and not live. And you know, that's the situation of every single person born into this world. They are born sin sick. They are born with a lost nature, a fallen nature. And that nature is what drives them and defines them. And that nature ultimately will produce for them only death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And they are doomed as well. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. God said to Hezekiah, I'm sorry, Hezekiah, you are going to die. There's no recovery. There's uh, no uh, hope for you. There is no remedy for you. You are going to die. And man in his natural state has no remedy to that sin sickness. They are going to die in their sin if God doesn't intervene. So we looked at his problem. And then we looked at his prayer. Verse 2 says that Hezekiah did the right thing and an amazing thing. It says, Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord. Boy, isn't that a reminder of how you and I got saved. When he turned his face to the wall, we made note of the posture of his prayer. If he was turning to the wall, he was turning away from everything else. The reason you got saved is you finally made up your mind that nothing else could save you. You understood you wouldn't have come to Jesus if you hadn't known that baptism couldn't save you. If you believed baptism could save you, you would have gone to the baptistry. Uh, you came to Jesus because you believed that charity couldn't save you. If you believed charity could have saved you, you would have went down to the soup kitchen. On and on we could go giving illustration. If you believed that being a member of a church would have got you to heaven, you just would have joined a member of the church. Uh, but if you are born again by the grace of God, it's because you came to Jesus and asked forgiveness of your sins. And the only reason that you would have done that is you were turning your face against everything else, turning your back to all other options. We notice the posture of his prayer. Then we notice the person of it. Who did he pray to? He prayed unto the Lord. In other words, he dealt directly with the Lord. He talked to God. Aren't you glad that our God is a reachable God? Aren't you glad we can pray to Him? We can, we don't have to go through a, a human intermediary. We don't go, have to go through the sanctions of some individual. We can deal directly with the Lord. And when you got saved, you got saved because you talked to God and asked for forgiveness. It's not so much that you said some pre-prescribed and pre-packaged set of words, but it's that you came to the Lord. You didn't just affirm these things to be true. You asked Him for forgiveness of your sins. So we thought about His prayer. Then we noticed His pardon. The Bible says, verse 5, because this, this is what God said, Behold, I will heal thee, 
And on that day, death was defeated in Hezekiah's life. Now, Hezekiah's problem was physical death, but you and I, our problem was spiritual death. And though we certainly will physically die one day, and there came a day that Hezekiah physically died, when you and I got born again, spiritual death was remedied that day. Death was defeated. I like how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. O grave, O, o death, where is a grave, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? Uh, that uh, God has defeated death for you and I. He has destroyed him that has the power over death. That is the devil. So death was defeated. But then not only that, the Bible says in verse 6, God said to him, I will add unto thy days 15 years. Now there's not a one of us, not you nor me, walking around that are promised another 15 years. And prior to this, Hezekiah was not promised 15 years. But through this process, he was given something that he never lost in the first place. He was given above that which he even saw. Far as we know, and in fact we do know, Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah records the prayer that he prayed to the Lord. He never asked God for 15 years, but God granted it. You know, that's the grace of God. God give you more than what you even knew or understood that you were asking for when you got saved. His life was lengthened. The way Christ says it in John chapter 10 is He gave us life and life more abundantly. And then we talked about the procedure for how this happened. Verse 7 The Bible says, and Isaiah said, take a lump of figs, and they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. We talked about what that meant in our life when we got born again. How did that happen? What was the procedure? We talked about in the New Testament how that the Lord Jesus uh, one day was walking by a fig tree. And that fig tree, though it was not yet the time of figs, it had all the outward leaves, all the outward evidences. It should have, uh, by all appearances, had figs upon it. But when he goes to it, there are no figs there. And so he curses that fig tree. And that was a picture of Israel in the day that the Lord was living in, that they had all the outward vestiges of religion, but there was no true righteousness about them, no sincere righteousness about them. And so in the mind of the Lord Jesus, figs were a picture of true righteousness Whenever you got saved, here's what happened. God took the true righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only righteous one to ever live, took His righteousness and laid it over top of your sickness and healed you of your lost condition. The boil, of course, being the source of the sickness in His body, the boil being a picture of His sin brokenness, and the lump of figs was placed upon it. And I'm glad, hey, listen, I'm glad the boil didn't spoil the figs. I'm glad that the figs healed the boil. Aren't you glad the righteous? Hey, listen, when he became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, he didn't stay sin, but thank God we stayed righteous in him. I'm glad. I I love the procedure here. And then we talked about the portrait. This amazing miracle where God returns backwards, pushes the sun backwards in its course, 10 degrees, and how that reminds us of what happened when Christ died on the cross of Calvary and why it reminds us of what God did when He saved you and me, that it was an impossible thing that happened that day. And when you got saved, it was no less a miracle than on this day when God pushed back the course of the sun. God did a more impossible thing when He provided for your salvation than He did on this day. And then we talked about how it was an unnatural thing. 
Uh, Now, when we say unnatural, we don't mean inappropriate necessarily, but we mean it was contrary to the nature. It's not in the nature of the sun to go backwards. Not in the nature of the sun to be overtaken by darkness, but rather it was in the nature of the sun to scatter darkness. But, you know, we have the exact same thing happening some 1,500 years later on Calvary's Hill when the Son of Righteousness was veiled in darkness when He paid for your sins and for my sins. So, don't you wish I'd preached that that quick this morning? Amen. You know, you'd think after this miraculous deliverance, here's old Hezekiah. He deserved to die. He was bound to die. He was doomed to die. And yet God in His mercy delivers him, gives him 15 more years. Now this good, godly old king in many ways is living on borrowed time. You would think that after this miraculous deliverance that Hezekiah would live for the Lord for the rest of the days of borrowed time. But you know, sadly, Scripture tells us differently about it. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse number 24. It says, In those days Hezekiah was sick to the death. He prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. Verse 25 says, But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him, and upon Judah and Jerusalem. If you want to know what we had set our GPS to this morning, it's this thought. You know, the sad truth is, a lot of us is living on borrowed time, but we don't act like it. We deserve to be in hell this morning, beside the worst of the worst. Here we are in the house of God, forgiven, and given the status of sonship, a child of God, never to feel the flames of hell. But the sad truth is a lot of us are not living like we owe God a thing. I'm going to tell you something. You owe God everything. There ain't a part of your life that you don't owe God. And the moment we bow up on Him and say, Now, Lord, that ain't fair. That belongs to me. Is the moment we have deviated from a biblical worldview and the moment that Brother Ken was warning about the other night where we have done plumb for God that we have been washed from our old sin. Here's what Hezekiah did. He lived like it had never happened. He lived as though he didn't know God a thing. And I wonder in your life and in my life, are we live? If you're saved, you're living on borrowed time. But are you living for the Lord like you are living on borrowed time? I find in Hezekiah's life three things that reveal to us that he was not living in light of this great truth and reality. And they follow our text this evening. The Bible says, and I want us to just read it in a chunk here. Look with me at verse 12. We'll read down to verse 21. Now, this is immediately after. Notice how the text opens at that time. Immediately, I mean, I'm talking about God has just barely got done doing this miracle in his life. And the Bible says, at that time, Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah. For he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah hearkened unto them, and showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah 
showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country. By the way, there's one other time that phrase far country is used in your Bible. They are come from a far country, even from Babylon. And he said, What had they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, All the things that are in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Now Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away. They shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. If you're paying attention to your text, I guess this is the place where Isaiah must give him a funny look. Because he said, is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? The rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all his might, how he made a pool and a conduit, brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Judah? Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, lest you think we're being a little harsh on Hezekiah, lest you think, well, preacher, maybe we don't know the whole story. You'll find that God, no less than three times in Scripture, records both this event and the closing days of Hezekiah. And they all three ring in chorus and harmony, one with another, of what a disappointing, What a sad, what an uneventful 15 years that Hezekiah had. You know, the sad truth of the matter is, a lot of us, we ain't getting out and living in rank wickedness. We're just wasting the days God's give us. We're not doing anything that will resound into eternity. Sad truth is, we're doing like Hezekiah. We're just sort of running out the clock that God so graciously has blessed us with. Notice three things that he spent his time on, and I'll be done tonight. I won't even keep you an extra 20 minutes out of meanness tonight. Notice what the Bible says about Hezekiah. Notice three things. Number one, I want you to notice his careless conduct. The Bible says in verse number 12, at that time, Baradoc Baladin, and you're going to find an interesting phrase here, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon sent letters and a present unto Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Do you know what's interesting about this verse? Is that it is the first prominent mention of a soon-to-be world empire by the name of Babylon in Scripture. If you study the history of great world empires, or at least important Gentile world empires, maybe we can say it that way, in the Old Testament, you'll find that the rise of Babylon was really a rather astounding event on the world stage. I mean, at the time that the Babylonians arose, the Assyrians looked invincible. It looked like they had an eternal empire that was not going anywhere. And then because of how they set themselves against God, and God struck 185,000 of them dead outside the walls of Jerusalem, 
by the angel of the Lord, God crippled their military power. They began to diminish and to vanish into the background. And this kingdom of Babylon that no one was expecting, that no one was looking for, begins to rise upon the world stage. The first time, you know what we find? We find that uh, God's people, their enemy, the first time we find them showing up, they ain't showing up to knock down the walls. They're showing up with a housewarming gift. Surely Hezekiah could have never imagined in that moment what would come. But here's something Hezekiah did know. He knew that God had drawn a line between the people of God and the people of this world. He had known that God expected there to be a purity amongst His people. And he should have known that if the devil's crowd comes with flattering lips, they also come sharpening their knives. Here's what we find. We find that one of the greatest mistakes in Hezekiah's life, living on borrowed time, is he just lived with this careless, cavalier, carefree, not vigilant, not sober attitude. And you know, when God has done rescued you from the grave, you've lost the right to be reckless with your life. It came at great cost and at great price. You and I, we don't have the right to live any old way that we want to. Notice two things that happen here. Number one, I want you to notice he was impressed with the world. It's obvious from our text that he is impressed with them because the Bible says in verse 13 that he hearkened unto them. And it's apparent that him inviting them into his home, and what does he do? He shows them every single treasure, every single beautiful thing, every single valuable thing. Now, why did he do this? Because he was impressed by the by the prominence and honor that was shown him. He was impressed by the gift that was given to him. Let's say it this way. He was wowed and awed by the things that this world had to offer. You know, for a lot of Christians, the uh, bedrock of their ineffectiveness is founded in them being enamored with what the world is and what the world has. A right appreciation of salvation and of what God did when He saved us has the added bonus effect of eradicating any enamorment with the world. You know why? Because God obviously loves us more than the world does because He's sure enough done more for us than the world ever has. But Hezekiah, because he lost sight of what God had done in his life, he began to be dazzled and distracted by what the world had to offer him. And sadly, there's a lot of Christians spending the life that Christ bought them at Calvary enamored and obsessed with all that glitters and shines in this world. Let me tell you something. Your life better be about more than what this world has to offer. One of the things I think is a blessing living in a declining empire is that as we see our economy dwindling and diminishing, we're getting a pretty good appreciation for how little that money is worth. And I I don't rejoice in things costing more. I don't rejoice in money being worth less. But we ought to be honest enough to admit that it's starting to wake a lot of people up to the fact that the things that have real value are the things found in this book and the things found in the Lord. Those are things that inflation can't touch. Those are things that are not phony monopoly money propped up by globalist corporations. Those are things that are of eternal value. And how dare we? How dare we subcontract and sell out our life to the paltry things that this world has? Hey, listen, uh, your life better be about more than earning a paycheck. God saved you. 
your, your life better be about more than just having a, a nice home or a nice car or nice clothes. You were bought by the blood of the Son of God. How dare you and I waste our lives on such paltry things? He was impressed with the world. And then notice what happened. He embraced the world. He said, oh, yes, Baradoc Ballad, and come on in and take your shoes off. Let's go on the grand tour of the house of Hezekiah. You know what that speaks to us? And Isaiah speaks to this. Isaiah asked him this question. He said, what have they seen in thine house? You know what that implies? Uh, Hezekiah, what do you think you're doing? I don't know if you're aware of this, Hezekiah, but they's the enemy. You just showed them where you keep your valuables. What's the matter with you? These people are your enemy. That tells me this. When Hezekiah invited them into the home, it was a great sign of trust and confidence that he was placing in them. You have to trust somebody to invite them into your home. Hey, you ought to think about that next time you turn the television on with what you turn it on to. You're inviting that into your home. You say, well, preacher, they ain't going to jump out of the TV and rob me. Number one, you don't know what kind of technology they got. Number two, (laughs) the real damage they can do to you is not what they take out of your home. It's what they leave in your home. The ideas and the perspectives. Uh, so I'm saying, that you, you ought to, hey, it's a great sign of trust to let someone in your home. Here's what Hezekiah's doing. He's saying to Baradoc Baladin, I trust you. Come on in. We're, we're, we're boon companions. Come on in. We're friends. We can trust one another. Every Christian always ends in destruction when they take the course of becoming a friend of the world. You know why? Because whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I, I Listen, I'm not mad about being saved, and I'm not mad about going to heaven. But I am saying that we need to understand that there is a clear line drawn in the sand. God expects us to be different from the world around us. And as such, that means not having a trust compact, not embracing this world and its system. We're going to have to make a choice. You can be. You say, preacher, why can't we be a friend with the world? You can be, but you're going to have to be an enemy of God to be that way. You're going to have to be an enemy of God to be that way. It's part of the reason that uh, modern, we were talking about a little bit in Sunday school this morning about the things that are killing Christianity. Uh, in, in the West, we, there's three things. We talked about celebrity Christianity and cultural Christianity and consumer Christianity. These three things are killing Christianity in the West, but this whole idea of we need to be as much like the world as possible, we need to embrace them and we need to become like them and thereby we will covertly sneak in and win them like you're some kind of, uh, you know, uh, King James Bible, KJV, soul winning seal team, amen? You're going, you're going to sneak attack the world. Bunch of nonsense. No, the reality is this, if you're going to be embraced by the world and embrace them, then you're going to have to let go of God in the process. It is, it is completely disconsonant with what the Bible says we are and should be. And here's the problem with the way he lived. Instead of saying, now, I belong to God and this life God has provided for me. And I'll spend the rest of my days living for the Lord and making sure that I'm consecrated unto Him. He instead was impressed by the world and embraced the world, tried to be as much like the world as he possibly could. I see his careless conduct, but then I see another thing. The Bible tells us that Isaiah reveals to him how that this ill decision on his part is going to affect the nation and affect even his very family. And 
Whenever he hears this, Hezekiah has an interesting response. He says in verse 19, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. And he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? Now, Isaiah had just told him that peace and truth would not be in the days of his children and in his grandchildren. And Hezekiah's response is, well, good, at least it will be in my days. You know what I find in him? I find not only his careless conduct, but I find his selfish spirit. Selfish spirit. Notice, first off, the disturbing revelation that he's given. Isaiah, verse 7 or 16, said unto Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace, the king of Babylon. Here's what Isaiah is saying. Let's just hillbilly summarize it. You've done messed up, Hezekiah. You've messed up. The decision you made is going to lead to much pain and much sorrow. Instead of being bothered by that, he's relieved that he personally will be spared of it. You know, the truth of the matter is, our decisions affect us and the people around us. You say, now, preacher Hezekiah didn't mean for that to happen. It didn't matter what his intentions were. What mattered is the fruit of disobedience unto the Lord. You know, when we live in disobedience to God, doesn't matter what we thought would happen as a result of that. All that matters is what God said would happen as a result of that. You can't, as a blood-bought, born-again Christian, you can't live any old way you want. You're a child of God now, and God's going to see to it that His children honor Him in the way they live. And so there's this disturbing revelation that's given. Hezekiah, your children are going to be mutilated and put in chains and, and there'll be nothing left and the kingdom will be carried away. And then we see his disturbing response. Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. Lest you wonder what he means. Evidently, Isaiah gave him a cross look and he said, Is it not good if peace and truth be in my days? We are probably living in one of the most selfish times in human history. There has been amongst culture and amongst politics this reckless and self-destructive nearsightedness that has said it doesn't matter what the next generation or the generation after experiences. All that matters is that we get ours now. You've seen this embodied in uh, Europe and in, in places. It's it, it's inter- I don't want to get in the weeds here. It's interesting. You know, almost all of Europe is governed over by childless individuals. Now, it's not a sin to be childless. It's not wrong to be childless. Or some people choose that, and then other people it's chosen for them. It's a path that God has. But it's interesting to me that on a continent, over the whole course that all of these global leaders would deliberately choose. But I mean, statistically speaking. For people in their age demographic, it's an unusual thing. They are deliberately, willfully chosen for that purpose. Now, not everybody that is without children is this way, but we do find this to be a theme in Europe. We find this to be a theme in their government that they're all nihilistic in the way that they're living. It doesn't matter to them that their economic policies, that their social policies are going to, in one or two generations, lead to the implosion of their continent, all that matters is here and now. 
Now, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but undoubtedly for these individuals who have no one that they care about that they're leaving anything to and do not believe in a just God that one day will recompense unto them the way that they've lived. They just believe they're going to go back to dirt and there'll be no response or result from any of that. They are they are crafted for the purpose of a kamikaze flight, culturally speaking, and the destruction of a people. You know, uh, the sad truth is, here's Hezekiah living the same way. Oh, it don't matter what happens after me. All that matters is that I enjoy my life. As long as I have peace and truth in my days, that's the only thing that matters to me. You know, it's sad when a Christian becomes a selfish individual. And as we said a moment ago, this thing of consumer Christianity is killing Christianity in the West. Consumer Christianity is viewing the relationship that the child of God has with the house of God and with Christianity as being that of a customer or a consumer of an item or of a service. And you know why? Because it's all centered around the concept of self-centeredness. How can I get that which pleases me the most? And that's what we find in Hezekiah's life. He doesn't care what's going to happen to anybody else. All that matters to him is that he live out his days in peace and in truth. I see his selfish spirit, but then I want you to notice a final thing. I'll be done tonight. Look at verse 20 and 21. Now, these verses seem benign. Uh, Let's say it this way. They seem boilerplate. They seem mediocre. And that's exactly my point. Because wouldn't you think if God had given you 15 years on your life, you had done more than the mediocre with it? Listen to what the Bible says about the rest of Hezekiah's acts. It says, in the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, and all his might, <laughs> and how he made a pool. That don't seem like a lot unless you've ever took care of a pool. Amen. He made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Let's talk about these three things to find his life. The first is his careless conduct. Wasn't careful with the life God had given him. The second is his selfish spirit, all about me and how I can enjoy life. But you know the sad thing is, probably above all, we see that his life was about earthly endeavors. He had 15 years to do something for God. What did he do? Well, he built a pool. He made a conduit. He brought water into the city. So now, preacher, those are all important things. Well, I guess if you feel like you've got a hundred years to get them done in, they might seem important. But I wasn't a man that only had 15 years, and those 15 years, uh, they be years that God had given him. Wouldn't you think he would have done something more important than that? Listen to how Second Chronicles describes these closing days of Hezekiah's life. It says, Hezekiah had exceeding much riches and honor. He made himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones, and for spices, and for shields, and for all manner of pleasant jewels, storehouses also. This man knows he's only got 15 years left. But he makes storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil, and stalls for all manner of beasts, and coats for flocks. Moreover, he provided him cities, and possessions of flocks, and herds in abundance, for God had given him substance very much. This same Hezekiah also stopped the utter water course of Gihon, brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. 
You know what you don't find a single bit of in there? You don't find him seeking revival. You don't find him cleansing the idolaters. You don't find him trying to build anything for the Lord that would glorify God the way that his father Solomon uh, and, and, and his father David had sought to do. For God. You don't find any of that. You know, instead what you find is you find his temporal legacy. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel and visited any of these great storehouses of Hezekiah. I'm guessing you hadn't because they ain't there. It's all gone. None of it mattered, Brother Ken, not a single bit of it. all, for a season, maybe had value, but pretty soon it all just crumbled away. He spent his life, even the good things he did for people, uh, he brings water into the city. We don't find him trying to lead any more national revivals. He, he, he wanted clean water for the people, didn't care whether they had clean hearts, just wanted them to have clean water. Sounds like modern missions. Here's what I'm saying. It was all just about temporal effort, temporal legacy. The things that he spent his life on, he spent 15 years that God had given him. And these things, many of them probably didn't even last another 15. What in your life is going to outlast your funeral? What in your life will still be there once the flowers have wilted that they bring you? Is there anything that you'd be able to point to and say, now I did something for God that counted throughout all of eternity. You know, one of the greatest ways we can waste our life is just to not do anything that outlasts our breath. A great many of us, it's sad. The only legacy we got is a temporal legacy like he had. I see his temporal legacy. Then look at verse 21. This is probably the saddest verse on the life of Hezekiah says, and Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Now, if you're not a student of the Bible, that name Manasseh might not mean a thing to you. But if you've studied the Word of God, if you've studied this time in Israel's history, you know that that name Manasseh was a terrible name. Manasseh was the most wicked king that ever lived and reigned over Judah. He would go on to put his children through the fire under Moloch. He would go on to institute and to uh, bring about a revitalization of Baal worship and of pagan worship throughout the land. He'd go on, if history tells us correctly, to have the prophet Isaiah sawn in half and killed. And the very last word in Hezekiah's life is the word Manasseh. I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. There ain't never been a person that God hadn't given free will. And uh, in your life and in my life, I'm raising my sons, and there'll come a day they're going to make their choices as to, as to how they'll live their life. And I can't make that choice. I can put all the right things in their life, but they've got to be the one to make the right decision. I don't mean to impute or impugn anyone, anything in what I'm about to say, but I am going to say this. How tragic of a thing would it be to gain riches and to lose our children? What a sad thing it would be to to gain all that this world provides, but leave behind a legacy of wickedness in the lives of our children. 
I see not only his temporal legacy, I see his tragic legacy. Because at the end of the day, the most foolish decision that Hezekiah made was when he turned his attention away from the opportunity that God had given him with his family and instead turned it to a temporal legacy that wouldn't outlast even the reign of his son who turned out to be so wicked. I'm not saying that Hezekiah made those decisions for Manasseh. Certainly he did not. But I am saying this, maybe it would have made a difference if instead of spending his days building pools and conduit and laying up storehouses and treasure, if he had took those 15 years that God had given him that he didn't even deserve in the first place and lived them for the glory of God and lived them to please the Lord and lived like he was living on borrowed time. You're saved by God's grace. You're living on borrowed time. The question is, are you living like you're living on borrowed time? If not, you ought to make your mind up. Say, Lord, I commit tonight that I'm going to live my life to count for Christ because I wouldn't have this life were it not for you in the first place. Let's bow together as a musician comes. The altar's open. Now would be a great time. God stirred your heart. Come meet Him in this altar. Maybe there's some area of your life that God's dealt with you. Hey, it's easy to get locked into this rat race. It's easy to let the focus of our life get shifted to the million menial responsibilities that we have day in, day out, and to take and and just sadly squander these days that we have for the Lord and instead to live our life in such a way that does not please God. I wonder tonight if you're pleasing Lord in your life, and I wonder if you'd commit afresh and anew to want to live unto His pleasing. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.